You get these questions a lot. Where are you from? And what do you do? That's what you get asked, right? Meeting someone new, if you're at a party, or maybe on your dating profile. So why not just tell the world? We just launched a brand new online store that tells people where you're from and what you do. It has all 50 U.S. states and some countries represented with physical therapist gear at ptpinecast.com. A stainless steel tumbler for a PT in Tennessee. Check. South Carolina PT t-shirts. Double check. Face masks for a Florida PT. Yeah, we got that. Great gear for life, all with your profession and the home state on it. Great gifts for yourself, a colleague, a clinical instructor, a student, all now at ptpinecast.com. We talk PT, drink beer, and record it. This is the PT Pinecast. What's going on, podcast listeners? Uh, my day job is working at Mount Sinai Hospital with the uh, Division of Rehabilitation and Human Performance, along with the Abilities Research Center. A uh, group of physical therapists, doctors, other healthcare professionals who all do rehabilitation research. And three of my colleagues at the ARC at Mount Sinai were part of a world physio briefing paper on COVID-19. I got to do a live stream with three of them and Darren Brown, who's a physio from the UK, who helped to put that briefing paper together. This is a vital resource. I really wanted to be able to share this with my Pintcast audience as well. Did this as a live stream throughout my uh, Mount Sinai channels, but it's just, it was too much of a resource not to share with you. Uh, went around the room virtually having each of the four uh, expert guests sharing some insight into why this paper is something you, and I'm talking to you, if you're working with anybody who might be living after COVID, you need to know about this, right? We're going to do the highlights, the tactical stuff, and then I want to give you the link as well to get this free briefing paper from World Physio. So uh, that's what this is. I hope you get value from this. I hope it helps you upskill yourself, as you'll find out in the episode. And ultimately, I hope it helps you help your patients. If you got value from this, make sure you share it on social media. That's the uh, the best kind of repayment. That's all we look for. Uh, I hope you get value from it. Thanks for listening. This is the PT Pinecast. Hello. The World Physiotherapy Response to COVID-19 Briefing Paper was released this month. This briefing paper aims to support physiotherapists and other healthcare professionals in the provision of safe and effective long COVID rehabilitation practice, research, and policy. It is available for you now for free at world.physio, as well as in the comments of this live stream. Hi, I'm physical therapist Jimmy McKay, the director of communications at Mount Sinai Hospital Division of Rehabilitation and Human Performance, as well as the Abilities Research Center. Today, we bring you four professionals who all contributed to this briefing paper. You'll get insight into what you can take away from the paper and put directly into action for your patients and for your profession. First up, a clinical and academic physiotherapist, person living with long COVID, and founder of Long COVID Physio. Find that resource on Twitter, at Long COVID Physio. Let's welcome Darren Brown. Hello, Jimmy. Thank you for having me. Darren, thanks so much for the time. You were a big part in creating this briefing paper from World Physiotherapy. First, congratulations on helping to create such a large, comprehensive resource. My first question, why is this piece so important to you, to the profession of physiotherapy, and to our patients? 
Simply because at the moment we do not have enough evidence to understand what constitutes safe and effective rehabilitation interventions specific to physical activity, including exercise or sports. So what we have done is we have introduced an evidence-based approach, including both direct and indirect evidence about safety considerations when prescribing physical activity interventions for people living with long COVID. And we've introduced four key safety recommendations, but alongside those four key safety recommendations are also not only rationale, but actions on what you can do, including what constitutes safe and effective interventions. But most importantly, this has been led by and coordinated by people living with and affected by long COVID. Sounds great. What can clinicians do? What can clinicians do tactically and find in it to take away into the clinic and utilize with their patients today and tomorrow? The first thing is understand the four key safety recommendations around post-exertional symptom exacerbation, cardiac impairment, exertional oxygen desaturation, and also autonomic dysfunction and orthostatic intolerances. If we can understand those four key safety considerations before we prescribe physical activity interventions, we will be able to provide safer rehabilitation for people living with long COVID. Uh, last question for you right now before we bring in our next uh, guest. What more does our profession need to do to create greater involvement and meaningful engagement in persons living with and affected by long COVID? That's a really important and personal point, because obviously the greater involvement and meaningful engagement of people living with and affected by health conditions in all responses to health conditions leads to better outputs. So I would say that healthcare clinicians can work with people living with non-COVID, because at the minute this is a global issue. And people that are contracting coronavirus come in all shapes and sizes across all aspects of society. So there will be not only your patients, but your peers, your family, and also your colleagues that may be living with long COVID. So there's lots of opportunities for networking and collaboration for greater involvement and meaningful participation. Darren, thanks so much for the time and creating this. Thanks so much time for talking to us today. We're going to bring you back in uh, just one moment. Up next on the show is a physical therapist at the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York in the Rehabilitation and Human Performance Division, as well as the Abilities Research Center. Welcome, Jenna Tosto-Mancuso. Jenna, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Jimmy. All right, Jenna, we bring you in to talk highlights. We're going to have you give us your four biggest takeaways from this briefing paper from World Physio. Where do we start? Let's, let's go with what is long COVID? Just a quick overview. How would you explain it? Absolutely. So Long COVID can be a really broad diagnosis or a broad topic to discuss. And really, when we speak of long COVID, we're talking directly about any of the uh, long-term consequences and or symptoms that are residual after an initial COVID-19 infection. And so when we think of long COVID, we're looking at symptom development that are within weeks, if not months after the initial COVID-19 infection. And oftentimes those symptoms present a bit differently than the original COVID-19 symptoms. All right. Up next, big takeaway here. I'm going to throw three terms at three terms at you. Just give me the differences. All right. First, PASC, PACS, and long COVID. Similarities, but not the same. 
Absolutely. Similarities, not exactly the same. And I think that as a medical community, particularly when we look at the literature, um, these different nomenclatures are going to be important. And I think it's really helpful that all of us are on a unified front about the nomenclature. So when we think of PASC, post-acute sequela of COVID, uh, what we're talking about is any and all consequences after an initial COVID-19 infection. So that can include individuals um, who had mild or moderate symptoms, perhaps perhaps those who were self-managed at home, as well as those who were in hospital systems, potentially those who were mechanically ventilated, um, and with more longer-term um, symptom presentations that we oftentimes would refer to um, when we look at diagnoses outside of COVID as something called PICS, post-intensive care syndrome. So that PASC nomenclature captures all of the above. Um, when we talk about PACS or PACS, post-acute COVID-19 syndrome, uh, that is terminology that is synonymous with long COVID. So we're looking, um, as Darren had just chatted about a bit earlier, looking more specifically at some of those cardiovascular, autonomic, um, fatigue-mediated presentations that are often associated with long COVID. So PACS and long COVID uh, being synonymous and then PASC being a more of an umbrella term. All right. Thanks for clearing that up. We're going to go more similarities and differences. The difference was differences between symptom titrated activity and graded aerobic exercise. Sometimes people use these interchangeably. Uh, give us your, uh, your, your differences between the two. Absolutely. I think this is a really important detail to, to address. And I think the world physio uh, briefing paper has done a really important job of providing more context and an education for physical therapists who are prescribing exercise. Um, and when I say exercise, I mean that really, really lightly and quite differently than its normal context. So when we think about post, uh, I'm sorry, symptom titrated uh, activity or symptom titrated movement, that is currently the best practice for introduction of rehabilitation for individuals with long COVID. And so what that entails is really taking account of the patient symptom presentation, both in clinic, as well as response to ADLs, IADLs, functional mobility, and starting to titrate activity in response specifically to symptoms. And so what this really captures is uh, the need to be prescriptive, precise, and really, really intentional with the exercise, quote unquote, or as really as more appropriate as the activities for which we prescribe. When we look at graded aerobic exercise being more of this traditional um, higher intensity, um, heart rate mediated exercise prescription, uh, we're really at this point finding that is far too aggressive um, for the treatment of individuals with long COVID. And so the recommendation largely is to think along the lines of more of the symptom titrated return to activity, which can really be broad in the way that they're prescribed. All right, our final takeaway from this uh, briefing paper. Uh, if a clinician is listening right now, what can they do to upskill themselves to help treat people living with long COVID? What can they do as we start Monday morning applicable? Absolutely. So I think the first most significant thing that we all can do, all should be doing, number one, is listening to our patients. Um, our patients are the best source of information for our clinical skill set and clinical decision making. So A, start listening to our patients and really understanding their experience. Um, in terms of upskilling, I'm finding more and more that there are many, many groups, both nationally and internationally, um, who have spent the past year and now going on year and a half uh, investing into understanding long COVID. So starting with 
digging into the literature, looking at the World Physio paper, looking at several of other of the publications that have more recently coming out, um, as well as networking. As Darren had said, this is a really important opportunity for all of us to work together. And so if you are interested in learning more and upskilling, by all means, don't hesitate to reach out to any of us. Um, as well as anyone on that World Physio paper, I'm sure I can speak for our team here at Mount Sinai. We are more than excited and happy to help in any way we can. Uh, knowledge is power, so the more that we can work together, I think it's really for the best. Yeah, and just want to remind the audience that uh, if you're watching this live or on replay, uh, the link to that paper is available in the comments below. Jenna, thanks so much. We'll bring you back in just a minute. Up next, coming in the studio with me, Jamie Wood, an Australian clinician scientist with a physical therapy background, currently works at Mount Sinai Hospital with us in the Abilities Research Center. Jamie's current research focus is developing low-cost technology for people with chronic disease and disability. Jamie, coming in the studio. Jamie, thanks so much for your time. Hey, Jimmy. Great to be here. All right, Jamie, you've got a respiratory background. Let's utilize your expertise. How can respiratory physical therapists play a role in the assessment of people with long COVID? Yeah, this is a, a great question. Uh, specifically, some of the skills respiratory PTs have that are relevant to long COVID include you know, the assessment of breathing patterns, determining causes of dyspnea, which is also known as breathlessness, and exercise testing and prescription, especially in the presence of breathlessness and oxygen desaturation. However, as we've heard with long COVID, we need to adapt our approach given the risks of symptom exacerbation with traditional forms of assessment and treatment. So for example, we can be quite confident that in someone with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, we can elicit breathlessness and oxygen desaturation during a six minute walk test, for example, and that person will recover relatively quickly after the test and we have no issues later that day or during the following days. But we definitely know that performing these types of exercise tests in people with long COVID can lead to severe worsening of symptoms. So this needs to be taken into account if the person is reporting similar experiences following increases in levels of activity. So the brief, briefing paper really drives this point home throughout the document, which is great. The paper also highlights the potential for oxygen desaturation in a proportion of people with long COVID one month after discharge from hospital. And this may also occur in a smaller percentage of people that had less severe infection or weren't hospitalized at all. So this definitely supports the need for established supervised rehabilitation programs for people with long COVID, such as the program Jenna is leading at Mount Sinai or in situations where this might not be available, sufficient support from the healthcare institutions to facilitate self-monitoring of oxygen saturation during activity at home in people that we might consider at risk. I should acknowledge that um, just finally on that point that breathlessness and oxygen desaturation are not always correlated and someone, that can, someone can be breathless for other reasons while their oxygen levels are normal. And in certain lung conditions, the patient can also desaturate without noticeable symptoms. So this is why it's important for regular assessment by a clinician with expertise in this area. Yeah, good point. Now, there are subtle differences in causes of shortness of breath. What do we need to know to separate those? This is a really great question, Jimmy, and will be relevant to a large number of people with long COVID. It's likely that many will have never experienced breathlessness before. And so this is a new symptom to come to terms with in life. Um, as I touched on before, breathlessness can be associated with lower levels of oxygen, but it's not always the case. 
someone can be breathless and maintain normal levels, which is why this needs to be explored further to determine the cause. And for example, in people with established lung disease, breathlessness can also be mechanical in nature as the chest wall works harder to overcome dynamic hyperinflation during activity. So we need to rule out the other potential causes of why a person with long COVID might be reporting breathlessness to you as a clinician. Uh, on the whole, these would be dysfunctional breathing patterns, which also covers hyperventilation at rest or during exercise. And the other one I would think of is vocal cord dysfunction. So we have some interest in measuring uh, end tidal CO2 levels in our long COVID cohort. And while it can be definitely considered a crude measure given the ability for results to change quickly, we're seeing a pattern of slightly lower levels of end tidal CO2, which may indicate a component of hyperventilation. If dysfunctional breathing is suspected, a referral should be made to a PT with expertise in this area or to a breathwork program such as Stasis here in the US who we utilize frequently. And then vocal cord dysfunction can be very difficult to spot uh, to the untrained eye, but the common signs include being breathless uh, all of a sudden despite limited activity or during exercise, some strider, feeling like you're wheezing, uh, feeling like you've got a sensation to keep clearing your throat or coughing, throat and chest tightness and uh, voice hoarseness. Uh, vocal cord dysfunction can cause debilitating breathlessness. So if this is suspected, a referral should be made to uh, ENT or a speech therapist who can perform assessments at rest or, rest or during activity to diagnose this. So, you know, in summary, breathlessness is prevalent in long COVID. We see it commonly and it can have several causes and therefore this symptom should be explored thoroughly to determine the most appropriate treatment for each person. Jamie, thanks so much. As you're, as you're beginning to gather, a lot of different things need to be considered when working with this population. Very important, which is the reason for this resource. Thanks so much, Jamie. Our, uh, our final guest today, a medical doctor specializing in physical medicine and rehabilitation. She's also a postdoctoral fellow in neuroscience at the Abilities Research Center at Mount Sinai Hospital. And her research focuses our pain and cancer rehabilitation and neuromodulation. Let's welcome Laura Tabakoff. Laura, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me, Jimmy. It's really great to be here with this awesome team. All right, well, we're going to throw this at you. How can we ensure that exercise interventions are safe with this population? No, oh, that's super important. And uh, as Darren mentioned, uh, we can ensure that exercise or intervention is safe when the risks have been identified and cleared or in some cases monitored. So uh, it's really important to understand what are the risks so we can screen for them and ultimately prescribe the appropriate therapy for each patient. Uh, in general, I understand there's a lot of hesitancy in prescribing exercise for this population, um, but we also know that asking patients to just simply stay still and avoid any type of exercise or, activi or activity can contribute to worsening what they're already experiencing, which is limited function and limited ability to work, limited ability to participate and enjoy life. So I really believe that is our role as clinicians and providers to do better for our patients and to find a way to deliver safe and effective rehab for people living with long COVID. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Laura, can you explain the medical risks for us? A lot of times that comes up. Can you lay it out for us? Yep. No, that's super important. Great question. Uh, the paper does a great job um, at laying out the main risks that we should be attentive to and uh, how to screen for them. So. First up, we have the risk of exacerbating existing symptoms, right? So mainly fatigue and brain fog. And 
uh, like Jenna said, the action here is to perform a careful assessment of symptoms, not only during, but also importantly, in the hours and days following exercise or activity. So based on that, we can ensure that exercise will be prescribed at an appropriate pace, respecting the patient's energy levels, and most importantly, not pushing them to the point of fatigue or symptom exacerbation. So patient education and clinician education uh, and self-management is key. Um, the second risk would be worsening an underlying cardiac or pulmonary impairment, right? Um, like myocarditis, which we hear a lot about. Um, and here, risk stratification is mandatory. So when we have symptoms suggested, suggestive of these conditions, such as um, chest pain or dyspnea or um, tachypnea or hypoxia, meaning drops in desaturation, we should really investigate thoroughly. So we should have a clear medical history and examination, and medical tests here can be really helpful, such as an EKG, an echocardiogram, and a Holter in some cases. Um, at Sinai, we usually use an echocardiogram, and we uh, save more complex exams like MRIs for very particular cases. Um, and lastly, the third risk um, is worsening an autonomic dysregulation, right? So here uh, we recommend screening for dysautonomia, and there are several ways to do that. Um, but really it's important to make sure that exercises are being prescribed appropriately. So this means paying attention to signs of orthostatic intolerance and respecting patient's physiological response. Um, but um, overall, the idea is that when we know and understand the risks, we know how to screen for them and we know how to prescribe physical therapy in a safe and effective way. Yeah, a lot of considerations. That's what we're seeing, a lot of considerations. We don't want this to intimidate our fellow clinicians, no matter what discipline, utilize this resource and take it for what it's worth. Let's bring back all of our guests onto the screen. We're going to give you all an opportunity for a parting shot. Let's go around the uh, the horn in the order we went to. What sentiment would you want to leave with the audience as we wrap up today? We'll go with Darren first. From what you can see already, between the four of us today, with incredibly different and diverse experiences, there is consensus in what's been written within this briefing paper. And this briefing paper has actually included over 50 different people from different lived experience, professional and academic experience from different parts of the world, including the five world physiotherapy regions. So there is incredible consensus on this briefing paper, but it's not the end of the journey. As more evidence emerges that we can contribute towards this, more work will be done on this. So there's great opportunities here for more people to get involved. Love that. All right. Up next, uh, we turn to Jenna. Jenna, what do you want to leave with us today? Um, absolutely. So I think this goes a bit off of what Darren had just said, um, but really this is an opportunity for collaboration, again, nationally and internationally among clinicians, but also an important opportunity for collaboration with our patients. So definitely still listening to our patients and including them in the care team is a really important thing. Love that. Uh, Jamie, what do you got for us? Definitely don't make assumptions about the symptoms that people are reporting. Talk to people with long COVID, work out the causes of why uh, they may be happening, and then let's get out of our comfort zone as clinicians and be prepared to adapt to what is something that breaks the mold of uh, traditional a traditional um, rehabilitation condition. Fantastic. And Laura, we'll have you wrap up for us. Um. There is no recovery without rehabilitation, and it is our role. This is a call to action uh, to all providers involved in rehabilitation. When you weight all the risks and you take all these guidelines into consideration, the benefits uh, will definitely be greater than the risks. 
Well said. Again, that resource from world.physio, that's the site you can find it at, will also be available in the comments below. Thanks so much to, uh, to my colleagues on the screen here and watching around the world. Uh, this will benefit you, our profession, and ultimately our patients. Thanks so much. Don't let anyone tell you there are things we cannot change. We've done hard things before. We'll face hard things again, but we're doing it. Thousands of people will live simply because a whole bunch of people in here keep making medicine better. So if anyone ever tells you there's no other way, don't listen. We find a way. Mount Sinai. Follow us online. Welcome to the internet, my friend. How can I help you? Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PT Pinecast. All right, show today brought to you by the Brooks Institute of Higher Learning, an innovator in providing advanced post-professional education. Brooks IHL offering continuing education courses in numerous specialty areas, six PT residency programs, an OMPT fellowship, as well as challenging but rewarding internships. The IHL specializes in the translation of information from evidence to patient management. Learn what they can do for you to support your professional development at brooksihl.org. Our home on the internet. ptpinecast.com. Created by Build PT. Build PT provides marketing services specifically for private practice PTs. From website development and hosting. Providing content marketing solutions for PT clinics across the country. See what Build PT can do for you today at buildpt.com. The PT Pinecast is a product of PT Pinecast LLC. It is hosted and produced by PT Pinecast CEO Jim McKay and CBO Sky Donovan from Marymount University. We talk PT, drink beer, and record it. This has been another pour from the PT Pinecast. The PT Pinecast is intended for educational purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based solely on one source. While care is taken to ensure accuracy, factual errors can be present. More on the show at ptpinecast.com.